Well, good morning, folks. I want to just um, give a, a real brief overcap of what Russ shared last week. So he, um, he did mention that we are starting uh, a study in the book of Titus. So he talked about the first through nine, uh, or first chapter one through nine verses last week. Paul, the writer, introduces himself in these first uh, verses. <clears throat> he identifies his recipient of this letter as Titus, uh, who he has sent to kind of further shepherd the church in Crete. And really a major thrust of the book of Titus would be the need for Titus himself to appoint and equip qualified elders to steward the church. So he's encouraging him to go and find these people. Who are the people that have these qualifications and then equip them to actually steward and lead the church in Crete? So Paul indicates the character and the qualifications that these people would be called to have. We talked about that list. There's seven or eight of these things uh, that Paul says these are critically important that these people have in their lives in order to be qualified for elders. Things like uh, being hospitable, being a lover of good, being sensible, being just, devout, someone who holds fast and faithful to the word of God. And then beginning in the verse 10, Paul shifts his letter at this point and really lays out why this is so critical. He gives an explanation of why is it critical that at this point we begin to equip these people to find these people to be elders. And that's where we're going to jump off. So um, let's, I think up here, we'll have Titus 10 through 16, and I'm going to just read it here, and you can follow along with me. This is what it says. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teachings, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So in verse 10, Paul begins this section by describing what most men are like in Crete. He says they're rebellious. He says their talk is empty and they're deceiving. And he really emphasizes this idea that he's especially talking about those of the circumcision. Which that doesn't make a ton of sense in our context right now. But what he's referring to are Jewish Christians at this point. And it was widely known that Jewish Christians were teaching a theology or a doctrine that tried to marry the law of Moses with the Christian faith. And they said that the only way that you can have true acceptance of God is if you follow the old law, the Jewish law, and you believe the things that Jesus taught. And Paul says, these are the worst offenders. He then <clears throat> says that they are teaching this false doctrine and that it's beginning to erode the family structure, the family system within the church. Again, pointing out this idea that these are the worst offenders because this doctrine is beginning to break apart families. In verse 12, he moves to this unique section where he argues to uh, kind of justify his really harsh evaluation of these people. And he does it by quoting a 6th century BCE Cretan philosopher or seer, essentially a Cretan prophet, as he calls him, named Epimenides. Epimenides said this, Cretans are always liars, vile beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now what's unique about this section 
is that this is the only place in Scripture where a pagan is called a prophet. So we kind of get this unique look into what Paul's doing here. And Paul agrees with the assessment of Epimenides. And he urges Titus and his newly appointed elders, or the people that he will appoint to be elders, to reprove these men in Crete, to bring them back into the fold of the church, bring them back into right doctrine, and to keep themselves from becoming one of these men who are holding on to this Jewish practice of trying to marry the old law and the new reality that Christ set forth. In verse 15, he ends by appealing to the freedom of God. He says that things are pure to those who are pure, but to the unpure, all things are defiled. The legalism of the Jewish law painted many things as unclean. It painted many things as unpure, but Paul reminds Titus in this moment of the truth that true purification comes only through Christ. It's not achieved through our diets, It's not achieved through the things we choose to touch or choose not to touch, but it only comes through the redemption of Christ. I kind of think that maybe when he was writing this to Titus, Paul was thinking about what he wrote to the church uh, in, in the book of Romans, chapter 14, verse 14, where he says this, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Jesus says it this way in the book of Mark chapter 7, there is nothing outside a man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of a man are what defile the man. And so in verse 16, Paul concludes that these men profess to know God, but their actions or their lack thereof deny Christ and his redemption which is just one more place in Scripture that speaks to the idea that true knowing always involves action. That true belief always involves action. So, that was a real brief overview. Paul uses this first chapter to make his argument for the need of elders not only to eradicate the false doctrine and to protect the church and its families in Crete, but then to expose the teachers and the teachings in that context and instructs Titus and his elders to silence these people. Now, part of me loves verses 10 through 16 because it's such a strong wording from Paul. I love when people are emboldened to make strong evaluations and to call things out. Part of me irks a little bit at this, though. Because I don't like to be lumped into stereotypes. And I feel like by using this quote from Epimenides, he kind of lumps all Cretes into this idea. All Cretan people, that they are always liars. That they are evil beasts. That they are gluttons. You see, I love when people are bold. I love when people call things out. I love when people try to expose truth. Try to bring things into the light. But I'm not a huge fan of being lumped into certain groups just based on the color of my skin, my gender, my likes, my dislikes, whatever. And I think we probably would all agree with that. Being stereotyped isn't the most fun in the world. And yet we do it. We do it a lot. So I thought, what are maybe some really common stereotypes? Maybe some stereotypes that won't hurt that much, but we could laugh at a little bit. So I asked my wife uh, to maybe help me in this a little bit. And here was one of the first things that we came up with. Men don't listen. 
How many people have ever heard that stereotype before? Now, how many men out here kind of embody the stereotype, maybe, just a touch? Yeah. How about this one? Women are bad drivers. Anybody ever heard that one before? Yeah. Now here, I thought this would be good. I have a picture. Topher, can you put that picture up here? (laughs) I typed in into a Google search just bad women drivers, and this is the first picture that came up. (laughs) I don't even know how, like, physically how that's possible. But I love that she's holding her water bottle and she's got those sunglasses on posing for the picture. So so those are two stereotypes. How about this one? White people have no rhythm. You've probably heard of the white man's overbite before. I know I've rocked that before. I found this picture of this guy. I don't know what move that is, but he's incredibly flexible. That's all I know. So, so obviously some stereotypes we can laugh at. There are actually even full websites that are devoted just to poking fun at stereotypes. How many people have heard of the website Stuff White People Like? Anybody heard of this before? Yeah, it's this whole website, and I, I thought maybe we would come up with a list. Here, there's like a hundred different things that they list, but here are some. Standing still at a concert, ugly sweater parties, Conan O'Brien, unpaid internships, The Daily Show, Colbert Report, Studying Abroad, and Moleskine Notebooks. I chose these because this is, I pretty much am all of those things. (laughs) So I could identify with all those things. There's another website, it was actually a spin-off of this one, um, and it's called Stuff Christians Like. Has anybody heard this one before? Let's go up to that one. So here are a couple things that he says. <laughs> Comparing the gospel to certain movies, i.e. Braveheart or The Matrix. Thomas Kincaid, Tim Tebow, and Kurt Cameron. But not Kurt Cameron in Growing Pains, Kurt Cameron, but more Kurt Cam- Cameron in like the Left Behind series, which he did. Occasionally swearing. Not enough to be considered a sinner, but just enough to be edgy. And then deep V-necks. Who's, wearing, who's rocking a V-neck shirt today? Raise it proud. Yeah. Aaron's not only wearing a V-neck shirt, but it's periwinkle. So that is awesome. Yeah. So yeah. So stereotypes, they're funny. There are some stereotypes that we can laugh at. There are some stereotypes that we can point at and say, okay, I, you know, that's kind of me and, and that's funny and, and I'll, I'll lean into that. But then there are some that are really hurtful. Some that can, can really bring some pain, can produce some brokenness in our lives. Crete's stereotype of being always liars, of being beasts, vile, I think it came from their reputation, a reputation that was built over centuries. And Epimenides isn't the only person that speaks to the idea that the Cretan people were this way. There were other writers, Cicero being one of them, some guy named Polybius. I have no idea who that is. But there are other people that in um, centuries before Paul penned this letter to Titus wrote about the Cretan people being this way. And so now as the gospel is beginning to infiltrate this country, as churches are beginning to be established in the midst of the influential cities, it was holding back, their reputation was holding back the gospel advancement. 
It was holding back the, the very work that Titus and Paul wanted to see happen. And so their reputation was beginning to become very destructive. And the more I thought about this passage this week, the more I felt drawn to this idea that Paul's encouragement to Titus and to his elders were to reshape the reputation of the church, to reshape the reputation of the Cretan church. So we're going to do a little uh, example here, a little teaching lesson. Everybody grab something right now, whether it's your book, your coffee, your pen, your cell phone, whatever it is, and just hold it up in the air. Okay? Now put that down next to you or on your lap and try to do that without using your thumb. Okay, it still can be done, correct? But it's a little more challenging, isn't it? It's a little more difficult. If you used a pen, which some people did, it was easy. You just hold it like that. Or you have your, your program, that's easy. But when you get something heavy like a Bible, a big Bible, it's, it becomes a little more challenging to do that. And a reputation is a little bit like a thumb. You don't really know how critical it is until you've lost it. You don't really realize how important it is until your thumb's broken and you can't use it anymore and you've got to learn to write with your other hand. You've got to learn to do stuff in a way that you haven't done it before. My mom said it this way. She used the word trust, but I think it is the same with a reputation. She always used to say, it takes a long time to build up trust, but only a second to ruin it. It's a similar way with a reputation. It takes an eternity, a whole lifetime to build a great reputation, and yet one dumb mistake can ruin that reputation. I thought a lot about this um, the past four or five years of my life. Um, previous, when Grace and I lived in Coeur d'Alene, my neighbor Stephen uh, was a great guy. I had several different occasions where we would stand out. We shared a, a lawn together, um, or you know, our property lines um, were there. And, and so there were many times where we'd be out doing yard work or mowing the lawn, and I would chat and, and have a conversation with Stephen. And um, it was about probably two or three years after we'd lived there where I came upon, um, or I had heard about a website called, uh, I think it's called Family Watchdog. Um, now, if you've heard of this, you know what this is, but essentially what this is, is you type in your address into Family Watchdog, and it will produce uh, a little locale of where your neighborhood is and then tell you where all of the registered sex offenders are that live near you. Now, I know every parent right now is writing <laughs> this website down. Um, so. You know, naturally, I went home and typed in our, our address, and sure enough, Stephen was a registered sex offender, lived right next door to us. Now, you first, when you first see that, there's that moment of, whoa, oh my gosh, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? I have a wife, I have a, a young family, little kids. How, how does this change things? Now, previous to me typing in my address, I had no context for Stephen, other than he was just a really nice guy kept to himself and, and was a good guy, was married. Um, his daughter would come over frequently and, and spend time with them, and um, I'd got, you know, gotten to know their family a little bit. And, but now everything changed for me. The way that I viewed Stephen was different because of his reputation as a sex offender. Now what's interesting about this is I actually have no idea what happened. Maybe Steve, Stephen made some horrendous choices and really should be labeled that way. 
and should carry that reputation for the safety of others. Maybe Stephen, as an 18-year-old kid, took a dare and went streaking and was caught, made a stupid mistake, and now he has to carry this reputation. And maybe he wasn't a safety issue for my family, for myself, for my wife, for our neighbors. But it, ultimately, it doesn't really matter because in this situation and in the situation with reputation, when we talk about that, perception really does become reality. It's unfortunate, but it's true. I mean, even in the statement that Paul uses, see, there's no way for Paul to know if all Cretans are always liars. That's a ridiculous statement to know. It's actually even called the Epimenides Paradox, if you've read anything about this. You see, Epimenides was a Crete, and yet he writes, Cretans are always liars. So really, there's either two choices. Either he is lying, and therefore the very statement is false, and it can't be trusted, or he's telling the truth, which therefore means the statement is false, because not all Cretans are always liars. So even in of itself, this statement is a ridiculous statement. And yet, the point remains the same, that reputation is important, that when we talk about reputation, perception is reality. Reputation is important because it shapes how people view things, it shapes how people respond to other people or to church, potentially. Paul is pushing for a change in the reputation of the church. He's pushing Titus to make repairs to the reputation of the church in Crete. And so he implores Titus to gather a group of people around him that's willing to lead the church out of the unhealthy reputation, reclaim its reputation as a gospel-centered church, as a church that is about the very things that Christ was about. So what does this mean for us? What is the truth in this passage? And I don't mean to be Captain Obvious up here, but listen to this statement. We individually and corporately carry the very reputation of Jesus Christ. We individually, we corporately this morning carry the reputation of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus was the visible image of the invisible God. We are the visible representation of Jesus and his redemptive love. We bear his image. We carry his reputation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So do you hear the language in this passage? And maybe just leave that up there, Topher. We are new creations. We have been reconciled. We've been given this ministry of reconciliation. We are his ambassadors. God makes his appeal through us. We are 
the righteousness of God. I can't help but think that maybe Paul was thinking about this, thinking about what he wrote to the church in Corinth when he was penning this letter to Titus. When he was saying, stop the dysfunction, stop the false doctrine, stop the people that are eroding the family structure within this church because you are the ambassadors of Christ. The church is supposed to be the the, uh, reputation of Jesus. A couple of years ago, I read a book called Unchristian. Has anybody seen this book before or read this book? Uh, I read it with a group of pastors in Coeur d'Alene, and the author, noticing that there was an alarming number of people walking away from the church, an alarming number of people disassociating themselves from the church or from a faith community, and really an alarming number of people no longer professing Jesus as their Lord, especially in younger generations, decided that, they, that he was going to uh, conduct a, a rather extensive and comprehensive survey asking people why. What he found is that most young people, and again, he targeted on towards these younger generations, but he, uh, what he found was that most young people have a stereotypical view of the church. And he came up with six stereotypes that were the most common. But before I let you know what his were, what do you think some of these stereotypes would have been? Call some out. What, what are some stereotypes that you think people hold of the church? Hypocrites. Good. Uh, judgmental and what? Self-righteous. Good. Christians don't have fun. Good. Okay. Church causes conflict or brings conflict. Sure. What else? Faith is a crutch. Good one. What? Obsolete. What other stereotypes? Opposing science? Maybe just not relevant anymore? Again, kind of obsolete, sure. Not dedicated. Here are the six that he came up with, or that he didn't come up with these, the six that were most predominant in in his survey. The church is hypocritical, or Christians are hypocritical. Christians only care about people getting saved and nothing else. The church is anti-homosexual. The church is too sheltered. Christians are too sheltered. The church is too political. The church is judgmental. Again, perception often becomes reality. This is the way that a lot of people view not only us as Christians, but view the church in general. So here's a sobering thought this morning. If this is the current reputation of the church, then it's sobering to think that there's a pretty good chance that your neighbor thinks you are these things. There's a pretty good chance that your neighbor thinks that the church you go to is these things. For the church in Crete, it was that they were always liars. It was that they were vile beasts, that they were lazy gluttons. Whether these things were true for all people in the church in Crete doesn't really matter because it was their their reputation. They were associated with it. They were stereotyped into being that way. And similarly, regardless of your views on homosexuality, regardless of your political engagement, regardless of whether or not you're judgmental, the unchristian survey would show that you are viewed that way by a lot of people. 
Now, here's the deal. This has to break our hearts. Because this is not Jesus. This is not the, repu- the, rep- I'm sorry, the reputation of Jesus. So this has to break our hearts. Contextually speaking, this passage was written for Titus to encourage him to find elders to steward the church. But I think this passage is really for all of us in the way that whether or not we're called into eldership, we are ambassadors for Jesus. And we're called to uphold the reputation of Jesus Christ and when necessary to repair the the reputation of the church. So as ambassadors of Jesus, I think we have a couple of options. But before we can really talk about those options, I think we need to take a moment to examine ourselves and ask, have we hurt the reputation of the church? Have there been things that we've said, things that we've done that would hurt the reputation? So let's just take these six. I know there are others. We even identified others. But just take these six and ask yourself, have you been hypocritical before? And if so, if that's something that you struggle with, something that we struggle with, maybe we need to work better at aligning our words and our actions. Have you only been concerned with your friend, your coworker, your neighbor getting saved and nothing beyond that? And if so, maybe we should be more concerned with the process of sanctification, the process of somebody becoming whole. Have you been viewed as anti-homosexual? Have we been viewed that way? And if so, maybe we should learn to listen more and learn to love more. Has somebody seen you as sheltered? And if so, maybe we need to learn how to engage culture in a healthy way. Or if you're too political, maybe we should worry about the values of the kingdom less than a certain political party. If you've been seen as judgmental, maybe we should spend some more time in self-evaluation and growth in faith. I think once we can honestly assess these things in our lives, not that we have to move away from these things, not that we have to be perfect in these things, but when we can take a hard, long look at ourselves, then we can begin to worry about the reputation of the church. And here's where I think we have a couple of options when dealing with this. The first being we can just accept the reputation. Just thinking it's not really our problem. Maybe it's not your problem because personally you don't struggle with these things. You're not judgmental. You're not hypocritical. So that's kind of other people's issues. I'm just going to continue to come on Sunday and I'm just going to accept it, live in this reality, and not worry about it. How many of of us have just resigned ourselves to that reality? Just allow it to happen, saying, well, it's a failed system. I'm just going to be a part of it, and there's really nothing I can do. So you can accept. The second, you can flee. You can flee from the church. You can disassociate yourself with the church and say, I no longer need a community of faith because it's so screwed up. I'm just going to get away from it all, and I'm going to do this Jesus thing on my own. I'm going to be spiritual, and I'm just going to be with Jesus on my own. I don't need the faith community, because it's broken. The 
I think the best option is to uphold and repair. This is our call. It's our call not only to love the church, but to fight for her, knowing that she's broken, but believing in her beauty and goodness. Our call is to uphold the reputation of Jesus and repair the reputation of the church. So think for just a moment. If we were to, again, take that list that was previously mentioned and and ask a couple of questions, how would we engage in ways that would uphold and repair the reputation of the church? If somebody were to say those things to us, if your neighbor said, well, Christians are just, just judgmental, how do you uphold and repair in that situation? Or ask yourself this question, how have you been an ambassador of Christ in dealing with these issues? How have you been an ambassador of Jesus Christ? Or maybe this one, how have you been a part of the ministry of reconciliation in one of those six areas? Because our job is to uphold and repair. I don't think anybody desires to be known as judgmental or hypocritical. But unfortunately, and too often, it's our apathy and ignorance that speak loudest and lead others to view the church in this way. And so this is the hurdle. This is the challenge in this passage. As a gospel people, we need to not only be aware of the current reputation, be aware of the way that people view the church, but then we need to actively repair it. We need to actively uphold the things that Jesus was about, the things that Jesus taught, and then work towards repairing the reputation, knowing that the church is beautiful, knowing that the church is incredible, is God's tool to reach the world. And so it begins here. It begins with us corporately, but it begins with us individually as well. It begins in your conversations with your neighbor it begins in your conversations with your coworker. It begins in inviting somebody to church and helping them to experience Christian community. Again, knowing that we are not perfect, but knowing that we are on a common track to uphold and repair this reputation, being about the things that Jesus was about. So let me end this way. Some people will hear this this morning and they'll push back. And they'll say that reputation is merely a man-made construction. We need to only be concerned about our own stuff. We need to only be concerned about our own character, that we don't need to worry about the way that others view us, that we need to hold fast and, and strong to the truth of Scripture and focus on our individual character. And they're right. Reputation is secondary to your own character. So hear me say that. Your reputation is secondary to your character. But if we truly lived out the character of Christ, then why do we find ourselves in this position? Why is the church viewed this way? Honestly, I think because we use this argument that reputation is secondary to character as a thin veil that covers over our need to engage the hard work of repairing and upholding. Because it is hard work and it takes sacrifice. It means that we open ourselves to be humbled 
It means that we are going to be stretched, that we are going to be pushed and challenged. But I'm confident that it's our divine calling to uphold the reputation of Jesus and to repair the reputation of the church no matter the cost. We're going to move into a time of worship through song and communion this morning. So we had a couple songs at the front end, but really we wanted to allow more time to worship after the talk this morning. But before you take the bread, before you take the cup, here's my encouragement. Examine your heart and seek forgiveness if you need to, if you're somebody that hasn't upheld the reputation of the church. Or maybe seek forgiveness if you've been unwilling to repair the reputation. So don't feel like you need to get up and bust through the lines right away, but take a moment and examine. Take a moment and ask those hard questions of yourself. But then when you're ready, take in a way that celebrates. Take the bread and the cup in a way that celebrates the reality of God's incredible grace, the reality of his unwavering mercy, the reality that he calls us ambassadors, that he invites us into his ministry, and that he trusts us to carry his reputation. Let's pray this morning.